coming up on the Rip Body Podcast. You can go into any of these Facebook groups or forums where people are following this diet and they're reporting their, their blood lipids, their doctors urging them to get a statin to bring their LDL cholesterol down, they're getting referred to cardiologists, they're asking, look, is this okay? And then you have people telling them, it's fine. Like once you're on this diet, it doesn't matter that your LDL cholesterol is through the roof. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Morgan, and this is the Rip Body Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Danny Lennon. Danny is the founder of Sigma Nutrition. He's the longtime host of the popular podcast, Sigma Nutrition Radio. He's a member of the advisory board of the Sports Nutrition Association, the global regulatory body responsible for the standardization of best practices in the sports nutrition profession. And in this conversation, we talk about the issues with interpreting research and why when someone is trying to persuade you of something, especially a fringe opinion, taking one or two studies that they've linked to at face value can be a trap. And given Danny's background working with MMA fighters, we talk about weight cutting and how he makes evidence-based recommendations despite limited research being available. I've been listening to Danny's pod for eight years now. I consider him a good friend and I've had him on the show before. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Danny, it's a pleasure to have you on again. I think it's been four years since the last time we spoke with the mm. recorded conversation. I realized that uh, two guys sitting down and having a conversation without sticking a mic in each other's faces and assuming that everyone's going to be interested in that conversation and releasing it as a podcast is a rare thing recently. Um, but here you are. You're back, sir. Yes, a uh, pleasure to be back. So thanks for inviting me. I obviously didn't alienate you too much the last few times we've uh, been in contact. So uh, thanks for having me. Well, you you kindly... Did you invite me over to Ireland or did I just crash that conference a couple of times? Because I had a really good Pretty time. Same, yeah. I think it was mentioned with the implication that, hey, you should come to this without saying you're obliged to come, but you probably should come. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, EPC, European Powerlifting Conference 2018, 2019. Was that? Did I get that right? We had, the first one was 2017. Mm. Uh, we had 2017 and 18 were both in Ireland, and 2019 was ran in London. That's right. So that was, yep. Yeah, good times, big names there. You've been running your podcast now for 10 years. That's quite a milestone. Well done. I appreciate that. Um, if, if nothing else, it's perseverance. Uh, but hopefully, I mean, it's a sign that there's a, enough people listening that was worth doing it for that period of time. So yeah, come up to close to 10 years. That's kind of strange to think about. You you go hard though. This is not a casual nutrition and training podcast. This is not a casual nutrition podcast. This is deep stuff. What made you think that people would actually be able to stomach a really geeky nutrition pod like yours? Why start it? Uh, well, a, a couple of reasons I think that just aligned, I think, so around this time for context for people was 2014 was when the podcast started, early 2014. So the podcast landscape then was very different to what it is now. Uh, a lot of people didn't really know what a podcast was. If they had, they'd heard of some type of audio type thing, but it wasn't really that big, hadn't really taken off in general, but there were podcasts about but just I was unaware of ones specifically in the areas of nutrition that I was interested in. 
So I listened to a few others and health podcasts generally. And so I personally liked them when I was commuting. Um, and so when I started Sigma Nutrition, uh, and that was initially, I was as a nutrition con consultant, nutritionist, um, and the idea was to start making content with the website. So written articles, I'm going to do videos. And I said, well, may I do this podcasting? No one uh, that I know already is, is doing it, but it seems like it should be straightforward enough to set up and I'll ask a few people and see if they'd be willing to do it. And basically the initial uh, idea for what to talk about or what level to put it at was not necessarily how is this going to unfold as a business master plan. It was, well, what are the types of podcasts I like listening to? And so I just asked questions at the level that I wanted to know the answers to and at the level I liked listening to. And ultimately, I think without really knowing it, that was the best strategy that you'd probably advise to someone anyway, because otherwise you're going to get bored or it's not going to be that stimulating and it's just not going to be uh, right. So I ended up just doing that. And with a bit of luck, pretty early on, I found that that was starting to be the medium I enjoyed the most. And that started to get a bit of traction early on. And so I ended up just saying, I'm going to put more of my effort here. I'm not going to do any YouTube stuff uh, like I planned. I'm, I'm not going to write articles every week or every second week or whatever I'd initially uh, thought in my mind I was capable of, bitten off more than I could chew. And I said, I'm just going to double down on this podcast thing. And I, I was kind of lucky in the sense that I, for whatever reason, was aware that I wanted to spend a significant amount period of time focusing on putting out good quality work before necessarily worrying too much about uh, sales or how many people were coming on for coaching, et cetera. And so for that early period of time, it was like, how do I just make these podcast episodes the best I can? And it kind of worked out okay. And the rest is just kind of momentum from there. It was no other big master plan apart from that. Um, yeah, that was it. And here we are, what, 500 episodes in? 600? Yeah, 500 is, is next week, actually. Next next Tuesday is 500. So we're, we're up to another milestone, actually. Yeah, I think you were right to follow your curiosity there. Did it surprise you how many people were interested in this? Because obviously you're you know, someone who's got a, a master's in nutrition and you are following your curiosity at that level. And so the level of conversation is far from casual. Um, did it surprise you the number of people that were happy to tune in and listen along? In some ways, yes. Uh, in that initially when I started, I had no idea if anyone would listen. And what I did know is I was relatively aware of a number of people within the fitness industry within Ireland at the time and had been making contacts, got to know people who were then I was friends with who were owning gyms, running gyms, et cetera, who were very interested in upskilling, going to conferences and so on. And so I probably had a skewed view of like, oh, everyone in the industry is like this. So of course, maybe people are going to want to listen. Mm. And so what I was probably surprised with is that there was a significant amount of people that were from the fitness industry that end up listening to this primarily nutrition podcast. Uh, although at the time, and I think this is something maybe you can talk about, is that early on for at least the first few years, there was more of a focus on nutrition topics that lend themselves to fitness, body composition, performance. 
Whereas I would say in the last number of years, more recently, that shift has been more towards more specific nutrition science topics, whether that's diet disease relationships, or then even more of a focus on actual nutrition sciences and the methodology of doing good quality nutrition research and getting a bit more geeky on that side. So there's been a shift that has happened. But yeah, I think I was, um, yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect. I just had, I had no idea of how to plan of how these numbers are going to grow, what to do with it, what's going to happen. And so oftentimes I say it was just kind of luck. There was the timing of it, that the podcast was out, that I essentially had this two, two and a half year head start for podcasts just took off. So then 2016, 2017, the whole field of podcasts started to really grow from there. And so I'd already built up this backlog of episodes, was already kind of in the podcast charts for different topics. And so a lot of it was just a function of, of luck, I think, uh, that, that served me well. And that kind of carried through until, until now. It's a great example of following your curiosity and also being in a fairly tight niche, fairly tight but underserved niche, and serving them really well and exploding because of it, because you've established yourself really as an expert, like you're invited to speak all over the world, which completely makes sense. Because if I were a nutrition student at university, what podcast am I going to listen to? Yours. If I am a, a coach who's eager to learn uh, about you know nutrition science, and I don't have a degree in that, uh, then what podcast am I going to listen to? Yours, obviously. It's absolutely a no-brainer. Um, so I, I think it's just it's been beautifully done. You're serving uh, industry well, or at least you were until you decided to what. 350-ish episodes in, you decided to no longer focus on how we can get jacked and lean. What, why, why did you betray us there, Danny? What, what happened? I think it was, well, it's a combination of two main things, really. Uh, I think, one, my own interests slightly changed. And that initially, the reason why I was so interested in talking about body composition or nutrition for strength or performance because they were my interests. I was big into to powerlifting um, for a long period of time, competing in that. And so a lot of these things were things I was keeping up to date with myself anyway, out of interest. And so I may as well do podcasts about them. And also, like I said, because of how it started and the initial industry and people around me that I came up with, there was a lot of people who listened to the podcast who were specifically in fitness or were gym owners, etc. And so the idea is, well, I've got to keep creating content that not only I like, but also is useful to them. And so I think that's why there was a skewing there. I think then over time, my own interests shift. I, I think uh, not that there's not interesting questions left, but once I was that many episodes in, there's mm -hmm. certain topics where I just wasn't interested in revisiting. So so there's only so many times I wanted to go over the protein dosing to maximize muscle protein synthesis, right? That's a that's a research question that needed to be filled in around the time I was starting. And if you look at a lot of the research that looked at the dose uh, response of that and MPS and how that might play into muscle growth, it was like 2014, 2015, we did a lot of these big studies. So then after a few years, you have a lot of those questions filled in and uh, they become less interesting to me to to look at 
And so I felt, well, I've already done them service. And I'm also interested in these other areas that are just related to more health, chronic disease. And so I want to talk to people about that. So it was just a combination of those two things um, and just wanting to keep it interesting and, and stimulating for me. So it started being to a point, well, what areas of nutrition do, do I want to learn more about that I maybe don't have a great handle of? And that's why I started, well, public health nutrition, um, like statistics that's in research, looking really deep at the methodology, all these areas that I was like, I'm going to go and learn more about these. So I may as well pursue that with the the podcast. And that was the the change, I think. So that those those were the two main reasons, I think. Do you get frustrated online when you see people still arguing about, say, protein intake, or they're just coming out with just this wild take, usually for attention, and you're just like, just go back and listen to these old episodes or read some of my articles, and this will this will unfuck you. Um, in the sense of people that are there doing that for attention or purposely misleading people and just like putting out poor information, that does frustrate me. If someone just doesn't know any better and they're asking a, a question that's misguided, I, I don't at all. But certainly, yeah, I, I, I think, and that's been another change over time that more and more of the focus has been on, well, just what is, how can I just stick to putting out information that is uh, accurate and interesting to me? Um, and not necessarily have to keep looking at myths that are out there in industry um, because they'll never really go away. And people who are saying those things don't actually care about you reasoning with evidence with them. Uh, it's not going to be that fruitful. And so the only way you're, I think, really going to get around that is for people who want to listen, uh, just create the type of content that is useful. Um, and of course, sometimes that does mean addressing nonsense that is out there. And we, we have done that yeah, a significant amount of times. <laughs> but for me, I try not to, I'll try and do it in that in that way, right? Let's do a podcast episode about this claim that is misguided. And let's mm -hmm. take that apart as opposed to get into a one-on-one -on -one debate on Twitter with someone who's saying that, because that's not going to be fruitful. They don't really care. But what might be useful is, okay, I'm going to take what they said and then me and Alan might sit down and have a an episode describing, okay, what does we know about the evidence in this area? Why is that claim misguided? If you come across this, here's how you can spot that it's bad information. So that's been the way I've tried to get around the frustration. Alan, uh, for those wondering, is your co-host slash co-conspirator uh, on, on many things that you do in the business. Um, but also has his own uh, uh, coaching company, Nutrition Advocates. Is that his handle? And then yeah, on Instagram they can find yeah the Nutritional Advocate. The Nutritional Advocate, and then I believe so. Yeah, what's his website again? Alinea. Uh, Alinea. Yeah. A l i n e a. Is that it? Yeah. Alinea Nutrition. A l i n e a. Yeah. Yeah. What you're saying there reminds me of a take that Eric. Uh, my co-author Eric Helms was saying uh, when we were discussing years ago, he doesn't focus on debunking things. He just focuses on putting out information around topics that he feels is most accurate and up to date at the time because mm -hmm. he, he feels that it's never ending and he feels that it will drag him into 
and maybe actually adding my words on this last bit, he feels that it will drag him into a negative thought space. Um, and I can definitely see that if you're constantly debunking things. Where it can get tough for me is if I don't stay on top of the nonsense that people are saying, then I can get blindsided when a client asks me a question and I don't know where it's coming from. Like it, it could be you need to eat uh, above a certain amount of fat and keep your carbs low so that you can maximize your testosterone levels within a super physiological range or before 30 minutes before you wake, you need to have 30 grams of protein. And there are certain times when I'm just like, what? <laughs> Where does this come from? Um, mm. and, and sometimes I know, sometimes I don't. I had someone on the Instagram Q&A ask me yesterday, hey, can some foods increase the perception of pain? Like if calories are the same, if I were to eat some foods versus others, can that cause, and I'm going to fill in their words there, I'm, I'm guessing they're thinking, can that cause inflammation? They've heard this big scary word, and then can that then increase my perception of pain in my body generally? And that isn't something that I have heard of, but then this is far outside of my wheelhouse and my, my bat senses are, are tingling for like, that sounds like nonsense. Actually, I don't know. Like I, if I were a betting man, I think, and like I was to do 50-50 on these bets, I think I'd end up winning, but I wouldn't want to dismiss it off out of hand because I just don't know. But these types of questions just come up again and again and again and again. So you'd, you've given a, a nice example of uh, questions that someone throws to you that you don't necessarily know where it comes from. It's probably some sort of silly claim, but because it's so out of left field, it seems like we, we can't say, mm. I, don't, I don't know where it's coming from, yeah. so I can't yeah, yeah, address yeah. it directly. How do we deal with this? So, so then this puts me in debunk mode, right? People are expecting me to be able to um, follow these links that they're giving and say whether or not um, the claim that they have read or heard is accurate. I don't necessarily have the skill set to do that, certainly not when it's slightly outside my zone of expertise. And this comes on to this issue of how do we interpret nutrition research? Why can't we just look at a paper or two papers as people not familiar with the research papers and how to interpret them and understand what they're saying and be able to apply it? What's you've decided recently to make a course with Alan on reading nutrition science research. Why is that even necessary to create a whole course on this? So it's really interesting. There's a kind of a few layers of questions we can work through there. The, the mm. first point of why we decided was really a specific gap that we didn't see, or at least that we are unaware of specifically what we've tried to create that we're not aware that's there, right? So we've seen that there's kind of like these different tiers of information someone can get depending on how into nutrition they are and how deep they want to get into the details. So if they just want to be told what is right, what is wrong, there's lots of good people that they can get that information from. 
for then there's kind of a next level of people that want to hear some of the details, but maybe not get too much into the actual research, but maybe some of the kind of more nerdier details. Then you have like the next layer up where you have, I would say you could put the category of uh, classic research reviews that you might see where you're actually discussing research. They're walking you through a paper. So you're learning to how they're interpreting it, but ultimately you're getting to the point of here's how the person doing this review has interpreted this paper and why, and hopefully you pick up a lot of skills. I think they're really useful, but it's also a bit distinct from actually I'm going to start from scratch. How do I find a research paper that addresses my question? How do I read through that? And how do I have a, a deeper knowledge? And that's obviously going to be for a small percentage of people. And so I don't think it's actually feasible for most people with a passing interest in nutrition or just want to know how to eat for their own training, for example, to actually go and learn nutrition science to the depth of being able to screen every research paper that someone throws out and say whether that's a good or a bad study per se or what the overall body of evidence says. That's going to be a specific thing for people more into nutrition, uh, which is what we're trying to aim for. Maybe that's a, it could be a medical practitioner that wants to upskill in how to read nutrition research. It could be an actual dietitian. It could be someone that's a nutrition science student, as an example. So I think that's more the area that we're trying to address. People that want the specifics of how do I go and read and interpret and understand nutrition research. So if we're talking about someone that is, that is not going to do that, which is the vast majority of people, then we're kind of left with, okay, maybe we can point some heuristics or red flags to them uh, in relation to certain claims. I don't think it's feasible, like I said, for them to be able to know 100% whether something they're coming across is legit or not. If someone's throwing out links to studies, they're not going to be able to go and read through them and interpret them if they don't have some degree of, of training in that. Hmm. And so it's better to maybe point them in the direction of, here are some general heuristics of when poor quality information or bad claims on the internet are made, here's a few things to look out for. For example, if someone's made a claim, first of all, are they citing research in uh, support of that? If so, is this type of research done in humans? Is this a, a human control trial? Or is this based on mechanistic speculation? Meaning, it, are they just saying, when we do this thing, it impacts this hormone, and therefore, if that's the case, it might have this impact on this set outcome. Mm. Is it a rodent study? These are a few things we can check on. doesn't necessarily mean the whole thing is nonsense, but it can make us be a bit more skeptical. And then is there a broader set of evidence in this area that seems to be contrasting with what this person's view is? And so if that is the case, and we're not entirely sure, and we can't really be sure unless we're going to go and read through all these papers ourselves, then my point to people would be, why would you go with the position that has the lowest probability of being correct? I.e. what this person is making this fringe claim that goes against the general consensus and is pointing to this random study versus what the overall body of evidence or consensus might say. Now, sure, I can't tell you in every case, you'll be 100% right doing that, but you're increasing your chances if you're going with uh, the, the highest probability of being correct. And so what that ends up looking like is if you took people at the general population level mm. and they were asking me questions about 
how to eat for a healthy diet, for example, if I'm not getting into specifics, I'm basically going to say, look, if you look at what are in the typical dietary guidelines in your country, and you get closer to just being able to set up behaviors that get you closer to that type of uh, dietary pattern than what you're currently doing, you're probably going to improve your health. And that's as much as you maybe need to think about. Now, is there some nuances in there? Sure. Is there some things that we could talk about that might need to be changed? Fine. But in the vast majority of cases, that's going to be far better for the average person in the general population than looking at some fringe claim they're seeing by a carnivore doctor on TikTok, as an example, despite them throwing out studies and saying, we've been misled, et cetera. So if we don't know, and it does sound confusing, let's just go with the highest probability of what's going to be correct. And that's generally where we have most consensus uh, in the field. And typically, while you can say there's some small issues with certain guidelines, in general, they're actually pretty good. Um, so that's on on one side. But then if we actually talk about how do we get better at reading research, that's a whole other question that we can certainly dive into. But uh, I want to pause there because I know I've said a lot and I don't want to lead us too off in a different direction. So I'll let you come back in. Yeah, we can get back into that. Remind me when we do about my confession about research papers and lack of reading them and why. So that's a pin and I want you to pull me back in later if I forget. Um, and also a little teaser for the dear listener. Uh, and you mentioned there the a carnivore diet doctor on TikTok. I assume that came first to mind because that might be one of the ones that grinds your gears the most, perhaps. Is that the case? And if so, why? It's more that it's just the best current representation of this concept we're talking about in the sense of this is a dietary pattern that's being advised that has no good evidence for. And in fact, if you look at the overall nutrition science literature, it's one of the few dietary patterns that is probably increasing people's risk of a, a variety of things and is probably going to cause harm on a, on a wide enough scale. Now, that is not to say in the short term, people might achieve certain benefits. A lot of people, if they start eating that type of diet, are probably going to reduce their caloric intake they're probably going to lose some weight. In that case, that can improve some health markers. Sure. Uh, there's some cases where, yeah, maybe someone does have an autoimmune condition where a specific food that they haven't identified yet has causing them issues. Now, if suddenly you cut out every food apart from just meat, you might have cut out the things that are a bit problematic and maybe they're seeing some resolution. But what is being said instead is that this is a, a way for humans to be optimally healthy, that this is perfectly fine to consume, that you can eat this diet with lots of saturated fat, and it doesn't matter if your LDL cholesterol goes sky high. These types of claims that are against the strongest evidence we have in, in some of these topics. And they're just being made because they do really well uh, in terms of there's this virality to this uh, type of diet right now. There's a lot of popularity. And it's one of those areas where it's a case where the people that are trying to cite evidence, uh, and there are a couple of these doctors that at least try to do that, will pull up these kind of real niche papers about a certain mechanism or about a certain rodent study, or even maybe some sort of pilot trial in humans, while at the same time completely ignoring the wealth of evidence we have from uh, from wider evidence. And so one of the big things that you try and do coming to conclusions on nutrition and health 
is what is the best quality evidence we have? And the best quality evidence means across a number of different lines of evidence, do we see them converging on the same outcome? And so, for example, something like very high levels of saturated fat in the diet, leading to increases in blood lipids and then ultimately in cardiovascular disease is something we have a really strong understanding of, not because of, I have this one study that's better than their one study. It's because we see that same conclusion across epidemiology, across intervention trials, across substitution analysis, across ecological data, so looking from one country to another, from public health campaigns, so countries that have put in a program to reduce saturated fat intake and seeing reductions in uh, coronary heart disease. So we have all these different lines of evidence that all converge on the same type of conclusion. And that's how we can have confidence in it, rather than these couple of studies that are held up as some sort of exception or are against the rule. And so, yeah, I, I think right now it's just a particularly popular diet for some reason. And I think it's driven by maybe the charisma of some of these guys, I'm not too sure, but uh, it's just a really good example of it's essentially an evidence-free zone driven by hype and pointing to mechanistic speculation and anecdotes. And uh, yeah, that's that's why I, I use that as the example. And unfortunately, these issues build up over time and they're not going to be held accountable when you have a heart attack. Correct. And and that will inevitably happen. I mean, you can go into any of these Facebook groups or forums where people are following this diet and they're reporting their their blood lipids, their doctor is urging them to get a statin to bring their LDL cholesterol down, they're getting referred to cardiologists, they're asking, look, is this okay? And then you have people telling them, it's fine. Like Once you're on this diet, it doesn't matter that your LDL cholesterol is through the roof. And the problem is exactly what you say, that over time, you what you have with this elevated blood lipids and, and elevated LDL cholesterol, or maybe more specifically ApoB, is that this is developing atherosclerosis, and that is something that takes years, decades to develop, and ultimately leads to an event. And that's going to be happening. And the people that kind of profited off this type of advice are not going to be held accountable, and there's going to be unfortunate people who just fell for this are going to end up having uh, cardiac events down the line. And that that is the the sad thing about it. Um, and that's the kind of result of poor pseudoscientific information that is profitable, I guess. Yeah. So people can be given uh, links to a few studies that appear to support the position. And they can go ahead and try to read those papers. But they would be blissfully unaware of the two, three, four, 500 papers in the broader um, evidence base and that form the consensus for the uh, guidelines that we have suggesting to limit saturated fat intake. We're just sticking with this example for now. And they're just not aware of it. So the confession I wanted to come back to um, is I read very few research papers myself. I don't trust myself to be able to interpret them. And that's because I know of the many pitfalls of doing so, sadly. And that's Mm. even me who works in this industry. And so I do rely heavily on the research reviews that you mentioned. I do rely heavily on people like yourself um, who 
spend their or like all of their time reading these things and also have qualifications in reading research papers well you've been through your masters like you've mm. you've been schooled in this um and if someone were to send me a paper that was about a line of research that i'm not familiar with asking me about a certain claim i'm almost certainly not going to read it because even if i did i know that i would be unaware of any other research in this area and so i could have the the i could have the wall pulled over my eyes on that one and so i i don't want to open myself up to that and so obviously that's why you yourself and alan you've decided to make this course on interpreting the nutrition research right is to help people. yeah and and that's essentially of for people that are in the position that actually do want to maybe take on reading some of this research uh, primarily and want to understand some of the nuances of reading nutrition science research because there are some distinctions between that and other areas of, of medicine for example that there are some useful things to be aware of that will allow better interpretation and someone to be able to go and do that. But by and large, I think your confession isn't really much of a confession. It's more of a the best practice, I would say, that any coach should have of being that ability to say, <laughs> look, well, why why would I read this research? Like to read a, a paper properly takes a significant amount of time. It's not a 10-minute thing. It takes a long time to properly read one paper. So if you're going to do that, you have to ask, well, what is the purpose of me doing this? Is it actually going to change what I do in practice? Is this going to be enough to change my mind? And if not, what am I doing it for? And so if someone asks you a question about saturated fat and coronary heart disease, then if you are, if your interest is fitness and you're training people, then you would be, it would be very strange to me to not to say, well, Look, here's what the guidelines are from most of the, uh, from let's say the American Heart Association, from the EA, uh, EAS in uh, Europe, and we're going to look at what they're saying. We have these pretty consistent guidelines from around the world of let's limit your saturated fat to say less than 10% of calories. And certainly if your LDL cholesterol is going up and your doctor is telling you that, let's do some basic things like swap out some of these high saturated fat foods for ones that have other sources of, of fat. And then with that, that's all we need to worry about. Why would you start going down this rabbit hole of saying, and this is the and this is how people get bought into it, is the type of people who want you to buy into their counterclaims are often going to root it in, well, why would you trust any of these big organizations? There's yeah. always a kind of conspiratorial tone to this. They're trying to mislead you. The truth is being concealed. You need to be a free thinker. And, and that's the irony to me that if someone has no training in this, doesn't have the time to go through the whole evidence base and is thinking that they're being a critical thinker by taking this one study someone has shown them and using that as the basis for their decisions as opposed to just because this organization or these guidelines said the opposite, that's not critical thinking. That's the opposite. That's being misled by some uh, guru. Way to be critical is exactly what you outlined of let me critically think, do I have the capacity right now to be able to go through this body of evidence? If not, what is the way I can get the highest likelihood of making the right decision for my client right now? The highest probability is probably if I follow these guidelines that are set out by experts in this area. Now, 
Is that 100% that they couldn't be incorrect? No, nothing ever in science is 100%, but it's certainly the highest probability that you can have uh, of being confident that you're doing the right by your client, as opposed to thinking you're some sort of free thinker by, I'm going to judge it all for myself. I'm not going to listen to any expert body. I'm not going to listen to any guidelines. Let me read all this research myself, even though I'm, I've never looked at nutrient research before. Right. It's kind of mind-boggling when you think of that type of logic loop that people get caught into. So I would say yours is the exact example of what people should be doing, and that is the example of critical thinking, not the opposite of, I'll, I'll independently work this all out. It's, it's, it's almost, I feel, I feel like a bit of a fraud. I don't know if this is right, um, but like many times I'll read, say, Mass, for example, a monthly research review that Eric Helms, Trexler, that they do. And they will point out something that I know I would have missed, something really critical that I know I would have missed in my interpretation. It's humbling to, to see these levels, these layers of intelligence with uh, interpreting studies that I, I don't have, and I'm grateful for them for it, but yeah. I kind of feel... Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's certainly nothing to feel bad about, and it's a very easy thing to understand. It's just their competency in a specific area. So if you have someone like a, an Eric Trexler, who's not only just super smart, but is specifically been in academia for a long period of time, doing primary research, reading God knows how many research papers, yeah, trained knows. through in statistics, in understanding methods of papers and constantly doing that. And then any of the guys in, in mass, their their business model is to read a bunch of research all the time and to break it down. Mm. So of course, like when you think about it, like, of course, why, why would you have anywhere near that level of being able to spot things? And I think that there's levels to this all. I mean, I often get that as, as well. And I would say I read a fair amount of nutrition research. I would say I am relatively confident in my abilities to interpret certainly uh, quite a number of areas, but then I could be talking to, to Alan about something and some areas, uh, it could be a statistical method that was used or, or something else in the paper that he has an, an insight or a level of depth on that is like, okay, there's all, there's also levels to this. And uh, that never ends and it shouldn't be a, a barrier to someone being able to look at research. And I, I certainly don't want to make this point to anyone listening that unless you are at the top of the food chain in academia, then you can't look at research or read it or try and work it out. In fact, it's really fun once you start doing it and learning about it and seeing, okay, how can I get better at reading this? How can I get better at looking at the, let's say the a forest plot chart and a meta-analysis? And once you understand that and you get to grips with it, it actually becomes really nice to do it and you look forward to to doing mm -hmm. it. So mm -hmm. I'd encourage people to do it, but realize that you don't have to be at the level of of some others to be able to still take something from it. Yeah, you your course you're going to be releasing this say first quarter, maybe tipping into the second quarter of next year, so twenty twenty four. Um who is this aimed at? So I think primary, primarily with if, if we take the Sigma nutrition audience, um, that those who follow Alan's work as well would be in a relatively similar boat that it tends to be people that are either involved in nutrition 
science. So they could be academics or they could be nutrition science students. They could be nutrition practitioners. So dietitians, nutritionists, uh, a significant number of say medical professionals with an interest in nutrition that maybe want to uh, get upskilled in the area of reading nutrition papers specifically. Because as I've noted a few times, there are some distinct differences from uh, critiquing say medical papers. Um, and then there's also a, a core number of people I think are just really interested in nutrition science. Maybe they've come from a fitness background. Maybe they are just doing generally nutrition coaching and want to have a better handle on some of this. Um, and so I think across those broad groups, there's there's varying uh, levels there. But I think there's enough for all of those groups because they're trying to get something slightly different from it. So for example, you might have someone who is a nutrition coach or talks about nutri health, nutrition and fitness online or on social media, and their use for the course might be to be, feel more comfortable with some of that terminology, to be better able to spot when someone is showing a bad study or a good study, et cetera, and be able to relay that. Whereas if you have a, a GP, they might be reading it to actually get, how do I go and find answers to specific questions my patients are having? Um, and then for nutrition science students, I think it's going to be the exact things that kind of me and Alan wish we'd learned uh, before, during, and even after uh, doing doing our master's programs. So th that's the general audience, I would say. Um, so people who are already relatively familiar with nutrition um, understand some of the, like the basic terminology of like what is in some of this stuff. But we do try and build up from from the bottom of understanding basic scientific principles, understanding the structure of a research paper, then getting into kind of like a specific, if you've never done this before, how do you go about finding a research uh, paper to read in the first place? Right. So mm -hmm. if I have a question and there's hundreds of thousands of papers for me to find online, how do I screen those? How do I filter out all the ones that are not worth reading? And how do I, I find one that's worth the time to do it? And then what process can I go through to interpret that properly? And then the rest of the modules are on specific areas of nutrition science and some of the nuances of through examples of how to read that. So that'll be nutrition epidemiology, randomized control trials, meta-analyses, and then um, animal and, and mechanistic models. And so through that, we've taken examples of good and bad studies, things you can be looking out for, and then actually showing you in the study, here's why we pick out this. Here's what this kind of means. And so hopefully building up a competency as we go through of some of the core principles of nutrition research. Um, and I'm happy to get into some examples of those, uh, some of which we've already touched on. And so ultimately by the end, people just feel less overwhelmed with reading research, um, no, no matter where they're kind of currently starting at. Beautiful. I look forward to taking that when it's released. Well, I hope you enjoy it if you do. I'm sure I will, Danny. Uh, your work is always great. You recently released a book. What we haven't mentioned thus far is that you've worked with a lot of fighters uh, in your years. Um, like a lot, you seem to have carved out a fair niche there. Um, this would be um, boxers, MMA fighters, those that need to make weight. And so you released a book with uh, Jordan Sullivan um, called Making Weight, the ultimate science-based guide to cutting weight for combat sports. If I think of places 
where good science and good logic is thoroughly lacking. It's been those gym locker rooms at, say, karate places or MMA places. The amount of nonsense that is just bashing off the walls there is ridiculous. Why do you think that is, especially so in these weight-making sports? I think there's a few factors that all contribute. One is that with combat sports, for a lot of things, even if you think of training modalities and how athletes train, there's been for a long period of time a big thing of like culture and handed down through the gym. People do things that their coach did, their coach did what their coach did, etc. And that has been, it's inherent in, in some combat sports more than others, but that for a while has been around. So it is an element of within a gym, this is the way we've always done it, and this is the way we're going to do it now with the the next generation of people. There's also then just, they are getting bombard, bar, bombarded with bad information all around. If, if, they, if they went on the internet for information or looked at big podcasts, they will probably find poor nutrition information generally. They end up probably trying to apply nutrition uh, diets that they see that are aimed at just like getting people's weight down as opposed to how do you fuel an athlete uh, and they're very, very different principles. Mm. I think that's at play. And then of course, it's also an area where specifically when it comes to the acute making weight protocols, like in the final week before weighing in, we don't have much direct evidence in that area for some of the things that these athletes are doing. And so they have to rely to some degree on what others have done. If they don't know where to turn, it's like, well, I'm going to ask, how did this guy make weight? If I'm seeing people cut seven, eight percent of their body weight, I'm not going to see a study that allows me to do that. Um, I'm not even going to know where to find a study. And so I'm just going to ask, how did the other guys do it? And so I think that all those things together lead to the opportunity for bad information to spread. You have a lot of people who are kind of opportunistic as well because of some of that gray area. If you just shout loudly and confident enough, you can get people to follow your thing. Most people could probably come up with something that get people to drop weight rapidly. And so again, if your only criteria is I need to get someone to weigh in, yeah, you might be able to do it, but are you doing it without completely wrecking them? Are they going to actually have to perform? Are you putting their health at risk? And so I think that's unfortunate what you see. I think it's certainly got better. I think a lot of athletes are, are certainly more tuned in now. Uh, some gyms are really good for it. But I think some of those reasons are probably why you still see some places where there's misguided information. Right. Yeah. And so you've written an evidence-based book, but there are a lot of areas where we don't have studies on this stuff. What do you do when that is the case? How do you fill in the gaps? Because mm -hmm. I, I think it, it can go a little bit too far where people can go so far into research that they miss uh, either anecdotal or practices that they've seen and have been repeated again and again and again, and, uh, and they miss those because there hasn't been any research on them. Therefore, they consider that not to be evidence-based, but that's not correct mm. either, is it? Right. And you're exactly right. So to give people some context, with combat sports, nutrition generally, there's lots of areas where we have really solid information. So with like the, the foundations of sports nutrition that the athletes should be following year round, 
we kind of know all that stuff, right? If you're going training, how do you stay fully hydrated? What should you consume before, during, and after training? Making sure you're getting enough total calories, enough carbohydrate, making sure you're getting protein to to recover from training sessions, all that stuff we're good on. Managing your body weight year-round through dieting, we have a really good handle on that. How do you manage your calories? What kind of rate of body weight decrease should you have? How should you gradually diet down and lose body fat? All of that is really settled. And so if you did nothing else but just knew that stuff, you could help a lot of combat sport athletes because a lot of them are getting that wrong. A lot of them are chronically under eating calories and carbohydrates in order to keep their body weight down when they don't need to. You can therefore allow them to make weight easier if you manage that. Their training performance improves. So there's lots that we do know. But you're right. The areas where we don't know is around these acute weight-making strategies that athletes use in those kind of final few days leading up to weigh-in, particularly if they have, let's say, a day or more between their weigh-in and competition, and you see these large weight cuts. So you're getting into areas here like water restriction, water loading, uh, glycogen depletion, and then use of saunas or hot baths, particularly is where we don't have a lot of good handle on this. So as, some, as an example, with the common strategy that anyone that's been involved in martial arts will probably have heard of, a water reloading for a number of days, i.e. drinking more water than you usually do for several days, and then drastically cutting it down the day before weigh-in, that has been studied once that I'm aware of in combat sport athletes. It was a study by Reed Reel and his colleagues um, when he was at the Australian Institute of Sport. That was done in 21 grapplers. So what we have is one study, and therefore we only have one type of water loading and restriction protocol looked at. So in that study, they used 100 mils of water per kilogram of body weight for three days, then one day at 15 mils uh, of water per kilogram of body weight for the restriction day. And they compared that to just a, a control. That's the only one we've looked at. So now we do have some evidence that, okay, this seemed to have some benefit, but we don't know well, what would have happened if instead of 100 mils per day, if we had only 60 or 70 or 80, would we have got the same effect without having to have these super high dose? We don't know. So this is the area that speaks to exactly what you said of sometimes we can try and only look there for the answers instead of seeing what's going on in practice. And so I was very lucky in writing this book. Not only did I have some of my background to to fall on, but with, with Jordan, who um, if people are in, interested in MMA at all, will have known a number of his fighters that he's been the dietitian for for a long period of time, Israel Adesanya, Alexander Volkanovsky, uh, Dan Hooker, Leon Edwards, Kai France, all the top names in the UFC from uh, New Zealand and Australia, as well as some down in the Northern Hemisphere. And so through that, and the way he collects data through their uh, fight camps and, and weight cuts, he's sitting on mountains of of data of different ways they've done stuff that they've had to because some athletes don't tolerate some of the this water loading you might see in a study or want to do things a different way. And so that gives insights then that we can maybe try and fill in some of those gaps. So that's one way that speaks this idea of of evidence-based is yes, can we base something on the best available evidence we have? But then where there's areas where we don't have a law, we do, do need to rely on other types of evidence and anecdotal evidence isn't probably as good as a, a big trial for a number of reasons, but it's still a type of evidence. And so if you have collected some good data and that can instead of inform what you do as a practitioner. So what we've tried to do is where possible, 
have things really solid foundations of sports nutrition that we know are 100% uh, going to be helpful, whether that's in terms of their fueling year-round, dieting down, supplements, hydration, all that stuff, we have a really good body of literature on. And then some of the other these areas use our best understanding from some of those studies that are there, from what we've seen in practice and data we've collected on athletes, and then just an understanding of physiologically what's going on with some of these practices athletes are doing in order to try and mitigate some of the harm. So a really good example of this mm. um, is with, say, the use of a hot bath or a sauna. What you're trying to do there is you're trying to elevate the athlete's core body temperature to a point where they get a consistent sweat rate. But what you what people don't understand, unless you actually go and look at some of the, the science, so there's not a direct study on this, right? There's not athletes where we can go and say, let's put them in a sauna to cut weight, mm. uh, blah, blah, blah. But we can look at what happens when people are exposed to these certain heats that they would be in a, in a sauna and, and a hot bath. And we can know in order to get that sweat response, we actually don't need their temperature to be super, super high. So we don't actually want us to put their core temperature as high as possible, as fast as possible. What ends up happening then is they're sweating a lot, but the sweat can't actually evaporate off. It's just dripping off them. And so if you don't have sweat evaporating, you're not getting a cooling of core body temperature. Because that's one of the things of how it helps us cool down is when you sweat, as that evaporates off, that helps. If it's not being able to evaporate off, now you're going to see a consistent rise in core body temperature. And the main risk with cutting weight in these ways is actually not dehydration like people think. It's actually these high heat exposures. That's the real risk. And so by going and understanding some of the physiology, by looking at some of these things that happens with heat exposure, where these real risks are, now we can start to say, okay, if I if I do have an athlete that's going to use these strategies and there's no other way around it and they have to use that in order to make weight, how do we then try and use this understanding of science and physiology to make that as safe as possible, i.e. that it gets some elevation in in heat so they get a bit of sweat on, but not mm. to the point where it's so excessive that we're putting them at risk of this heat exposure, mm. or even beyond that, just being familiar with what are the signs and, and symptoms of something going wrong? What sh- how can I have a, another medical professional checking over some of this stuff? Um, so that's where we can tie in things that aren't a direct study of what we're doing, but we're looking at the science of heat exposure or understanding physiology of what happens here to try and make sure what we are doing is at the very least not putting athletes uh, at a high degree of harm um, and is trying to fill in some of those gaps. So hopefully that makes some degree of sense, but I'm happy to elaborate yeah. if not. Yeah. So I, I uh, no, this is very interesting. So when sweat evaporates off, that creates a cooling effect. And that can actually be a good thing because we don't want the, uh, core temperature to rise too far because that can be dangerous. And so you would want to avoid situations where that cooling effect cannot take place once they're past a certain point and are consistently sweating. Practically, how do we how do we do that? Is that like avoiding um, wet saunas? Uh, I forgot what they're called, steam rooms. Mm-hmm. And um, you going into a sauna, a dry sauna instead? So, um, so here's a, a really good example of this, and this is an yeah. area where we do have a, a study, but kind of indirectly we're looking at this. This was a mm-hmm. couple of studies actually done in MMA athletes by John Connor, Brendan Egan, and colleagues actually in, in Dublin. 
um, and they looked at some of these effects of using hot baths to to, to make to make weight. Um, and they did some studies looking specifically at the addition of Epsom salts, which didn't seem really to add much. But they, what we do find from some of those studies is actually really useful information in that you see the level you need to get the water to in order to get the effect that we want isn't as high as maybe people think. So if you're getting that to like 40, 41, 42 degrees, um, you don't need to really go beyond that. And so the advantage here now is now a practical step you can take once you know that information is say, okay, if I am going to have an athlete using a hot bath, I'm going to use a thermometer. I'm going to keep that bath at a, a warm temperature, but not. it doesn't need to go beyond this kind of range. And I certainly don't need to put it really, really warm where not only is it maybe almost burning them, but is so warm that is, again, driving up that core body temperature because it's unnecessary. It's actually not achieving what you want. Just having the bath hotter and hotter isn't actually getting you a greater degree of of uh, sweat over the, the long term because you're going to have to stop that quicker because of that elevation in, in body temperature. Right, right. I see. Uh, yeah, that's something I didn't know. Um, interesting. So there is such a thing as enough, like 41, 42 degrees for your bath, that's going to be enough. And more than that is going to be counterproductive because it's going to limit that length of time that you can be in there. And then, but how do, how do we get past this? Okay. So a bath is better than a dry sauna because the effect is faster because of that thermal heat exchange in water is, is just that transfer is, is far more effective. Well, the reason what we, to, again, if someone wants to use a sauna, that is a, a possible strategy. Mm -hmm. I think the reason why I would tend to at least recommend the, the bath if, if, if they have no preference either, either way is that often athletes will prefer using the hot bath uh, because it has the benefit of allowing their face not to be exposed to that heat. So you're submerging most of their body but their face is sticking out of the water. You can also then like apply a cold cloth to the face. So even at a perception uh, wise, it feels a bit easier. It's not as overwhelming. You're not having this constant heat exposure everywhere. Um, and so there's a few benefits to, to it that way. Now it is possible for someone to use a, a sauna as well. Um, or some athletes now are using portable saunas where it's like zipped up here. It's like a a little tent almost mm. around them. Uh -huh. um, and there's other situations where they might use that. They might use some degree of exercise, but typically you're going to go for one of the passive ways of sweating, which is either your sauna or your hot bath. I think for most cases, if it's the bath, then followed by a, a towel wrap, that can be quite useful because again, the temperature around isn't this constant heat exposure. So you have them in the bath, you can gradually bring them out. As they come out, you do a, a towel wrap. So then you're keeping that, uh, their temperature at a, where you can keep that sweat rate going, but then their kind of face is, is not exposed. The room isn't this super hot room like you'd have in the, in the, in the sauna. So that, that, that's kind of more, uh, the reason, but it is still possible if someone prefers to use a sauna or that's maybe all they have access to at whatever hotel the F is at, they can use that. Right, I see. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. I remember Ellis McLean was here one year for the powerlifting championships. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was just the bench press championships. Um, and he needed to make weight. And like he was desperate. 
and he didn't make the weight in the end. He came in too many pounds over. I think he was holding on to, I, I think he just hadn't lost enough weight coming into Japan. And then he was holding on to weight. He said, um, when he got here, the, the flight bloated him or something happened. And we had 36 hours until the comp and I had him in a sauna. I had him walking around. We had to have a very low um, gut residue diet that day. And he's just a buddy. I'm not his nutritionist. I was just trying to help mm. him out, right? Make him mm. feel comfortable and, you know, get him to the competition. And yeah, so all of this stuff is very, it's not what I do, but it's very interesting to me. And I can see mm. how if I'd have had a resource like this, or if I'd have had a Danny Lannan in my corner, potentially that would have made a difference. Um, so Possibly. There's there's some cases that unfortunately can can't be saved or shouldn't be attempted to be saved. So I, I don't know the specifics of this particular cup, but maybe yeah. it was never meant to be. <laughs> yeah, we needed in the end to lose about five kilos, so about twelve pounds, and we're talking about thirty six hours before. And I didn't want to go and get diuretics or any any kind of like um, drug intervention, even if that had mm. been available, because I don't know what mm. I'm doing. Mm. And yeah. It was tough. Didn't quite make it. I think it was five. Was it seven? Ah, anyway. Yeah. Somewhere in that range. Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, I, I was just Googling what is the average temperature of the, a Japanese hot bath? Because I'm very familiar with those. Um, obviously, I go to the onsen, um, especially mm. after a day of snowboarding, skiing. Um, um, and it's between 38 and 43 degrees Celsius. So this is what about? 110 in Fahrenheit and these get really like it's definitely yeah you don't have to go hotter than that <laughs> that already <laughs> feels really hot yes yeah yeah so you you yeah you can get a plenty of an effect that without thinking yeah the hotter the better because especially when guys are because are, they're most of the time going to be running their own uh, kind of bath and topping up let's get that super hot let's get the, uh, sweating out and okay. yeah doesn't need to be that way i'll be sweating for 10 15 minutes after that even just after being in there for five minutes mm. Mm. yeah yeah anyway danny thank you for your time uh, this has been a good conversation andy thanks for having me uh appreciate the the questions allowing me to to ramble on about all sorts to do with nutrition so hopefully something was coherent and interesting for people listening but at least at least i had fun if not not the listener. <laughs> yeah. One, one of us did. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the show, make sure you've subscribed, share it with a friend who you think might benefit from it, and leave us an honest review. And if you are not on the email list, go to rebody.com and enter your address in the box. I'll send you my nutrition setup guide, and you'll also get my seven-day email course guiding you through the most common mistakes that I see people make with their nutrition. And lastly, if you're interested in our coaching services, go to rickbody.com slash coaching and I'd love to see how we can help. Catch you soon.